and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 132, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And there are hairy legs everywhere in the studio tonight. Oh God, it's a, it's a heat wave still, isn't it? And I think due to global warming, we're probably going to have this forever now. It does feel like, I mean, I know we go out to audiences all around the world, but I think this heat wave is pretty much a global phenomenon. Tomorrow, apparently, we're recording this on Wednesday night, it's going to be like 36 degrees here in the UK. Yeah, there's been fires in Greece, there's been, um, oh. oh God, what, in Japan there's been a massive heat wave as well? It's all over the place. I will admit that, I've not been inside playing many video games recently. No, no, I haven't. I've, I've tried to go on the VR, but God, that thing's sweaty in this weather. I don't want to get on that. I mean, I imagine a lot of people will be listening to this week's show maybe on, like, you know, hot beaches around the world. In the garden. Yeah, like, yeah, just take it nice and easy. Nice chill drink in your hand, maybe. Well, if you are new to the Retro Hour podcast or you listen every week, thank you so much for being there. Uh, the show comes out every Friday. Ravi and I talk about what's happening in the world of retro gaming, and there's been a lot of retro gaming news. Some new Atari Jaguar controllers we need to talk about soon. A prologue to to one of your all-time favourite adventure games, a fan-made project that looks incredible. And also, an unreleased Battletoads game. Ooh, Remember, that was massive yeah. back in the day. So, more about those coming up soon. And this week's guest, now every week on the show, I think, you know, the reason we started doing this podcast is to give you know us a chance to talk to our heroes and the people that were behind the games that we grew up playing. Totally. And this guest we've got actually came to us, Jake Simpson. And, you know... He's done some fantastic stuff. He's worked with Midway, Raven Software, Williams, Ed Boon, you know, Mortal Kombat, and uh, even Eugene Jarvis, who we've had on the show. Yeah, he was like one of his heroes, and he got to work with him at Midway as well. And he's a really interesting guy. I mean, I remember, like, growing up playing Midway games. Everyone knows the Mortal Kombat franchise. And there was also a game that not many people know about, and you were a fan of Judge Dredd, weren't you? Oh, massive fan. Still am, yeah. I've just heard that they're making the Rogue Trooper movie, which was uh, one of the 2080 characters, and that is going to be awesome, trust me. Well, did you know that Midway kind of made a Mortal Kombat-style Judge Dredd game? I won it because the Dread game I remember on the PlayStation was this big first-person shooter, and that wasn't very good. It was hard, but I played it to death because it was still Dread. <laughs> well, this game actually looked pretty good. It was like, you know, kind of digitised graphics like Mortal Kombat was, cool. but for some reason it got shelved and never got released. Well, let's find out why. Well, we'll find out all about that and more, especially on Midway, Williams, Raven Software, all of that kind of genre. You're going to love this. Jake Simpson is our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. And we've had a pretty busy week, actually. You've been all over. Yeah, I've, 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 I went to the Retro Man Cave and did a DJ set, and uh, that should be up on his channel this week. And uh, if you see it, I'm sweating to death in it, because in this weather, in a kind of basement underground with lights on and all this heat, God, that was intense. But it was a really good time, yeah. I heard there's some uh, dodgy dad dancing going on as oh, well. Oh, yeah, there's always <laughs> dodgy dad dancing. <laughs> and you did like this, um, you give me a little preview of this video. Is it out yet on your channel? Yeah, it's out on my channel. It's kind of like a music quiz, uh, essentially retro games that have been ripped off in pop music. Yeah, I'm going to turn this into a whole series because I've just released this one video and lots of people have said, oh, I know another example, I know another example. And then there's the opposite, which is video games taking off pop music. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to continue that and uh, check out my video. Yeah, we'll put those in the show notes at theretrohour.com. And, of course, we've got Play Expo coming up next month and we'll be contacting our competition winners and then Play Expo Blackpool later on in the summer. And, and you've got a new game with you there, haven't you, Dan? Uh, yeah, that I left out in the office here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's called Worthy. Worthy, yeah, and this is a full box. And this is a big box, you know what I mean? They haven't 
kind of cut the price on the box here. It looks really nice. It looks like, I mean, it's a new Amiga game. We did mention it on the show about two weeks ago. Yeah. And I'm going to do a YouTube video on this. But, um, I mean, yeah, I got sent it in the post today. I open it and it looked like... Do you remember when you used to walk into, like, Electronics Boutique and see Amiga games on the shelf? And they had that... It was kind of like a normal box, but it had that really nice sleeve over the top of it. Yeah. It looks amazing. I mean, yeah, I hope no one nicks it out in the office. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. But, yeah. They would need to find an Amiga to run it on first. <laughs> but, yeah, we'll uh, put links to our YouTube channels as well, because we do YouTube as well as a podcast. You know, we, we like to keep active, don't we? Yeah, you can actually see us, right? <laughs> <laughs> you do get people sometimes who only listen to the podcast, and then... You might get this on your channel. Some people comment, you're the guy for the podcast, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I didn't think you'd look anything like that. Yeah, I did. Know, what did you Total different like? images, yeah. <laughs> I had one guy say to me once, it's probably about 10 years ago, um, when I was on the radio, he thought, you don't look anything like you, you sound. He goes, I thought you'd be a short little stubby fat guy, which I've turned <laughs> into since. So, you know, maybe sealed my fate there. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you want to check out our YouTube channels, we'll put links in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, that is also the place where you can help out the Retro Hour because not only have we been doing YouTube, not only have we been travelling, but also we've been working a bit on our upcoming... We're kind of having a bit of lick of paint to the show, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, let's a call months. it a Retro Hour 2.0 where we're basically going to have a lick of paint, we're going to have nicer website, we're going to have it easier to access our back catalogue, which is really important because a lot of people have said, you know, oh, get this guy on. And it's like, he's, he's been on previously. Yeah, two so, years ago, click back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're going you're to help us out with that, Ravi. And yeah. we've got, we're changing our hosting soon for the podcast as well. So hopefully get it out to more people. So a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. I and mean, I was working out the other day, probably going to cost us about a grand to launch Retro Hour 2.0. So any help that we get with that, I mean, look, we don't mind paying for the show. We, we do pay a lot of it out of our own pockets. But if you'd like to help us out, with that um, everything we get into donations goes fully back into the running of the Retro Hour and you can make a donation via PayPal or cryptocurrency we have little links on the front page of our existing website theretrohour.com and you will get a mention on a future episode and find your place in the Hall of Fame just like Paul Edwards Marvin Drugsma Roger McNally and Steve Clifford who all made donations into the running of the show you can do the same at theretrohour.com now, I make no secret of the fact that I am a bit of a fan of NAF consoles. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you've got a CD32, a Jaguar, <laughs> CDI. Um, I was you, you've CDI probably got a huge collection of NAF consoles, <laughs> probably more than better, uh, nicer, modern consoles. Yeah. 3DO, I've got one of those yeah. as well. I was playing on my CDI over the weekend. I was playing um, Space Ace. Okay, yeah, I remember Space Ace. Yeah. That was that one where it's, it's kind of like Dragon's Lair, where you have to select a direction. Yeah, and you have to remember the sequence. Yeah, yeah to press left, press left, press... Oh, you fell off a bridge. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, but also the Atari Jaguar. Now, I, the Jaguar was an interesting one, because I do remember when it initially came out back in the day. Didn't pay a lot of attention to it. I mean, I was a bit more into computers then mm. um, than I was consoles. But I remember all the claims it was 64-bit, you know, and everything, which... Do the math. Yeah, there was all that, <laughs> wasn't there? Yeah. I've done videos about the Jaguar, and I think it is a very interesting system. But over time, I mean, you saw at um, Play Expo in Glasgow that they um, had an original price tag on a Jaguar from back in 2000, and it was like yeah. 10 quid. It was 10 quid, yeah, from yeah. Virgin, because they were getting rid. And then they had, like, today's price tag next to it, which was around 400 or 500, yeah. and I was like, God... More than they cost with your brand. If we had a time machine. <laughs> well, there is so many stories like that. You know, things become more collectible over time. And the Jaguar, um, actually, stuff for it is very collectible. I mean, there are games for the Jag stuff like Atari carts that will generally go for about 150 quid. Oh, and that CD add on in there, that one's really collectible. They're about 400 quid, yeah. I mean, if you're lucky on a good day. But also, there were, I don't know if you've ever seen these, Atari Jaguar Pro controllers. 
No, because I, I, I remember the original controllers yeah. and they had that little weird numpad on the bottom, didn't they? And you could put an overlay for certain games on it. And, you know, a lot of people diss that controller, but from apparently you were saying it was all right to use. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not the most uncomfortable controller in the world. The number pad thing, yeah, a bit gimmicky. And, you know, unless you're looking at it, you would never remember what anything does, which is kind of the downside to well, it. What's the difference with the Pro and the original, then? Uh, more buttons. Oh, I get more. <laughs> wow. So they released them. Um, Atari released this quite late in the console's life. So essentially where you normally get the three fire buttons, they put an additional three smaller buttons above it, and you've also got shoulder buttons as well. Are they like auto-fires or something like that, or is it just, just extra, extra fire functions? Buttons, yeah. Really, but I mean, there weren't many games that took advantage of it. I've got a feeling um, Primal Rage. Okay, you could do. I mean, there were a few that, if you if the game was written to take advantage of it, then it could. But also, the good thing about it is the controller ports that you've got in the Jaguar also work on stuff like the Atari STE and the Falcon. Uh, the D sub ones are they? Yeah, well, they're actually like VGA connectors have got more plugs. Oh wow! Okay, so they're called enhanced joystick ports. Mm. So at the moment, I mean, the thing about it is these Pro controllers are very rare. Yeah, I've never heard of them or even seen them, so yeah. Well, if you go on eBay, I mean, generally you're going to be paying about 200 quid each. You know, that's how expensive they are. And they're quite collectible, you know, people who want a Jaguar collection. Mm. The Pro controllers are, you know, something that people want. So at the moment, there is a couple of guys on the Atari Age forum. Um, a guy called Starwander is the main guy behind it. And he's actually going to be making some... Atari Jaguar Pro Controllers reproductions. Oh, nice. Wow. Atari Age is really one of these kind of forums where people are really active. You know, they make repo carts and now repo controllers. This is crazy. So how's he doing it? Is he like 3D printing it or what's going on? No, he's going to get them actually made into a proper mould. They're going to be like remaking exactly pretty much the quality as the original controllers Fantastic. were. Fantastic. And he's got a couple of other guys working with him. One guy's called Clint Thompson, who's got a bit more experience in doing stuff like that. And together, I mean, they've actually got some of the prototypes in that apparently are working pretty well. And they put pictures up there as well. And essentially, it's going to be an exact replica of the original controller, apart from on the back, it won't have the Atari logo. Yeah, wise move. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, just to play it safe. But um, they're going to be selling these for $60 per controller. And you can order them in like packs of two. So, I mean, bearing in mind, like I said, the originals are about 150, 200 quid for one. That's awesome because I, I know a lot of modern consoles have like pro controllers yeah. and normal ones, but I, I don't remember a lot of the old ones. So having these will be great, you know, for that price. It seems all right as well. And it happens with other systems. I mean, there are like, you know, exact clones of the NES and SNES and controllers and stuff like that. Yeah, so everywhere. So having stuff, you know, like the Jaguar that is, you know, not a platform that gets a lot of love in the general world of retro gaming, but does have its hardcore fan base. Um, and at the moment, they reckon they need about $30,000 it's going to cost them to do this campaign. And I think they've got about 400 orders so far at $60 each. Okay. So, I mean, again, this they reckon with an adapter, though, this will actually work on the Atari 5200, 2600, uh, the Atari 8-bit machines, the ST, probably get it working on a PC and the Falcon, you know, th those platforms as well. So I think if you, you extend it and kind of get all those users together on that fan base, it could be worthwhile. Also, some of the dentists might need them as well because <laughs> it was used on the older <laughs> dentist machines, wasn't it, the case? Yeah, just uh, screw like a drill into the end of yeah. it, yeah, control it with a Jaguar. That'd be awesome. No, actually, that'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? Yeah. So if you want to find out more about that campaign, I will put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, while we're talking about cool hardware as well, um, for computers, I think it's fair to say the GoTech was a bit of a revolution a few years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, so the GoTech was kind of a, a floppy drive replacement, and this was really cool because you could flash it with this custom firmware, put it on anything, but um, a lot of people would like mash up their cases when they put it in there. 
And I've, I've seen quite a lot of uses for it, actually. A lot of people have started using them on the old music samplers that used to use floppy disk drives. Yeah, a lot of keyboards did, didn't they, and stuff? Yeah, yeah, so they're now replacing them, and you're actually getting pre-kind of built music samplers with Gotex in them. Well, like you said, though, the thing about it is, it was the same size as an original three-and-a-half-inch floppy drive. Yeah. Um, and a lot well, of systems back then were like, they had kind of custom drives, didn't they? They well, didn't quite fit. Weren't they like the three-and-a-half-inch ones would be for big desktops? Yeah. And then you'd have a smaller kind of floppy standard for like... The, the little table-styles ones, yeah. Yeah, so thing about it is, though, like you said, people used to get, like, God, I've seen some horrible mods, especially in the Amiga forum. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's just people going at it with a drill and stuff yeah. like that. Axles and everything, yeah. yeah. Well, you don't have to do that anymore because there is actually a micro GoTech drive now. Now, these pictures, it looks tiny. I mean, there is actually um, a website and a forum that you can go onto, and they're selling these on Sell My Retro at the moment. And these are tiny. They are 47 by 46 millimetres. Wow. So these can actually just plug straight into the floppy drive header on the motherboard. Jeez, that's awesome, that is. So you can just still do exactly what you could before, put your USB in, load different sectors. Yeah. Wow. And even, I mean, I was thinking this, because it's so small... On, I mean, it might not work with every system, but there were, you remember like old PCs, mm. you could have an A drive and a B drive if you had like a ribbon cable with two connectors on. So you might be able to have one of these micro GoTex and keep the floppy drive in there as well. Well, I'm also looking that they have socket stuff for OLED displays yeah. and buzzers and stuff like that. So basically you could have one of those displays on your old school machine that will tell you exactly what the track is and ah, oh, awesome. Yeah, and you can have the GoTex literally mounted behind it because it's so small, this new one. Um, and it's only 25 quid. That's so cheap. So, yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it. It's absolutely tiny. Yeah. And I think, because a lot of those old cases were pretty cramped anyway, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. And what I've and never... Hot. <laughs> yeah, they did get very warm. But I, I'm thinking, you know, if you could actually run one of these in parallel with a floppy drive as well, you could have all the benefits of everything then, really, because, I mean, I've got a GoTech in my Atari STE, and... I kind of do miss having the floppy drive in there now and then. If you could have both, it'd be even better, I think. Yeah. So that's a good little solution. And for 25 quid, I mean, you know, if you've never used a GoTech before, essentially it's flash memory, isn't it? We could put a USB stick onto it and you just download all the floppy but disk isn't, images. But isn't that cheaper than the actual original GoTech, it seems to be? Yeah, I think yeah, they're about 40 quid, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, there's less components, I guess. It's a lot yeah. smaller. You haven't got the big plastic case around it as well. So, yeah, the micro GoTech has arrived. So oh, we'll have a remember. link in the uh, description there. Yeah, the retrohour.com. Now, we were both fans of adventure games, weren't we, the LucasArts games? Oh, yeah, absolutely love them. Do you like Day of the Tentacle? I love Day of the Tentacle, and I was very sad when it didn't come out on the Amiga. Um, you know, as with Tim Schafer, who's yep. like one of the best adventure game guys in the world, and he's, he was great with his point and clicks. And it had some great animation and some great um, voice acting in it as well, and it was, a, it was a sequel to Maniac Mansion. Yeah, the Ron Gilbert game. Yeah, yeah, which was kind of the original scum, you know, uh, scum engine original game. That's where it started, doesn't so, it, on yeah. that game, yeah. Uh, and the graphics on it always looked amazing as well, I thought. Yeah, they were good, yeah. It depends what you run it on. <laughs> I used to run it on some slow things. So was, but they always did. The animation was uh, that, that total kind of no CGI. It was just, you know, painted and hand-drawn, yeah, beautiful. It looked like very... Much like a cartoon, didn't it? The quality of it. So when you look at stuff like Monkey Island, there were tiny little sprites and they were pixelated, weren't they? Well, it was just before Full Throttle as well, and Full Throttle was when they took it into the kind of next level. But mm. 
this one, they had the old interface and they also had a lot of the old kind of jokey solutions to things, you know. That was always a thing, though, wasn't it, with the old LucasArts games? It was that humour that was in there. Yeah. They were just, like, hilarious. And it did get an HD upgrade, didn't it? Was yeah, it the yeah. last summer? Um, and uh, Dave Grossman was involved as well. It was really big. They were the co-creators, you know. Well, the thing about this is, if you can't get enough of Dave the Tentacle, there is a new game now called Return of the Tentacle Prologue. thing about it is, this is a complete fan-made project. So this is a prologue. So this is in between Maniac Mansion and Dave the Tentacle, I'm guessing. I've I've downloaded it. I've not actually played it much okay. yet. I watched a bit of the introduction. I mean, there is a trailer for it, so have a little listen to this. See what you think of the quality of the voice acting on it. Who could that be at this hour? Ah, the postman. Wow, that's... maybe it's a reply to my ad from the Lonely Hearts column. <laughs> Very well done. Isn't that it? is a that is a really good impression if they if they've got it. It's so faithful to the original version. Flyer for cheap mail order jewels. You can tell it's someone else, but it, it does sound awesome. Amazingly good. And I can't believe how good it looks for a fan project. I mean, it, it looks like it could have been an official sequel. I mean, it, it is free as well. So oh, wow. you can download this. I mean, they've what, got the what PC platforms? Version. I think it's on PC, Mac and Linux. Okay. So it's about a gigabyte to download. Not too big. But yeah, like I said, I, I, just before the show, I give it a download and try it out the first, literally watch it, opening introduction on it, blown away by the quality of the animation. And it just does capture that original LucasArts adventure feeling, I think. Totally, and that's like a... a it, it's like a lost genre, apart from the most recent title that they did that I've absolutely forgotten. What was it? <laughs> Thimbleweed Park. Yes, yeah. that was it, yeah. <laughs> it was like a forgotten genre, apart from that, which kind of took me directly back to there. And this is very similar to Thimbleweed Park as well. Well, the plot of this one is Purple Tentacle is back and tries to conquer the world and enslave humanity once more. The three friends, Bernard... Laverne and Hoagie make their way back to the mansion of the mad scientist Dr. Fred, uh, using time travel to help them save the world. Ah, so time travel, that explains the it. The prologue, there <laughs> yeah. you go. So, again, I mean, I looked at it and I thought, how are these guys not going to get sued? Yeah. <laughs> Which is my initial thing, and I hope they don't. I hope they don't, because it sounds like a really, they've put a lot of heart into that game. Yeah, and again, for fans of that genre, LucasArts are not doing anything with that these days. No. So you might as well let, let it back into the hands of the fans. In the meantime, you've also seen there's been a petition to uh, get Ron Gilbert his original rights back to Monkey Island. Yeah, I've seen that, and I don't think Disney care. Honestly, I know Disney, and they, they've, they sued people for doing a, a... The local council did a kind of Mickey Mouse flower display, oh and they sued them for that. So honestly, I... I think it's not worth it. <laughs> it's Disney. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot of people tweeting us a link. And I mean, I did sign it. I think we did mention it about six months ago, didn't we, when it first yeah. the story first broke? But, I mean, I'd love to see Ron doing more Monkey Island games. I mean, if not, you might just have to swap up the names of the characters or, or get these guys involved. Uh, Monkey Island. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Now, before we get into our special guest, Jake Simpson, uh, let's talk about a game from back in the day that never saw the light of day. Were you a fan of Battletoads? I wasn't really. I, 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 I had an awful version for the CD32 where you yeah. couldn't actually punch in it. Well, you could, but it was really hard to do. Was that um, the controllers? Was just yeah, it was just it. a really bad port. Um, I heard it was a good game, though. Like Very hard game. Lots of my friends used to be into it. Yeah. That's one thing I always hear about how difficult the game was and how unfair it was. Mm. Um, and obviously Rare were behind it. You know, we're, we're close to the guys at Rare. We've had a lot of them on the show before. But it turns out... They actually did a version of Battletoads uh, called Super Battletoads for the Game Boy that was 100% finished but never got released, Ah. which is a bit weird. 
the thing about this project is, it was apparently around the same time that Donkey Kong Land was getting made. Um, and they'd finished this game, it was ready to get released, and then a lot of the guys from Rare just kind of forgotten about it completely and thought, oh, you know, this must have never existed then. But you know, obviously in 2015, um, the Rare Replay compilation yeah. came out. Well, apparently when going through the archives, they found it on an old floppy disk. And they're so, like, why didn't we release this? <laughs> well, they booted it up, and apparently, you know, they're all sitting there bated breath, is it going to work, is it going to work? And it loaded up first time, apparently. Wow. So it is 100%. They couldn't see any bugs in the game. Apparently, it's a fully working Battletoads on the Game Boy. The only thing about it is they don't reckon we're ever going to see the light of day because um, obviously there's, there's copyright issues as yeah. well. But also, apparently, they were playing on it. And the guys that were behind the game tried to play it through, and apparently, it was so hard. They just kept dying all the time. <laughs> and they kept tweaking it to try and make the game harder and harder because they knew it inside out. But he said playing it 20 years on. It's just rock hard. They couldn't get anywhere in the game. So. <laughs> they were noobs again. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, I think you often found that, and a few people are making a point on this article here on Nintendo Life, that really games back in the day were designed to be difficult because if they were easy, you'd complete the game in like an hour. Yeah, but also they didn't have playtesting. They didn't have like a, a group full of people that would go, oh, this is too hard. And I, it would, sometimes it would be the programmer doing yeah. it, and he knew exactly... Yeah, what was going on? So he could pull off all the moves that n- nobody could, and then he released the game, and they're like, "This is impossibly hard." <laughs> <laughs> that happened a lot, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because they think, like you said, they played it inside out for like about six months. They think, "Oh, it's too easy," and they're yeah. at the difficulty level. But yeah, you know, when we're like us ten-year-olds trying to play it at home, it's <laughs> yeah. like got no chance with it. But also, I think it's kind of you know the fact that some games made it intentionally difficult was probably a hangover from the arcade that you know feed another 10p in just to give it another try. Totally. Probably a lot of that with it as well. Um, I think it's cool that there is this unreleased game lurking around there, and apparently they've got it running on a Game Boy emulator. Mm. And, you know, you never know, maybe someone might leak it onto the internet at some point. Stranger things have happened. Yeah, so, stranger uh, things have <laughs> happened. So, yeah, that would be great. And they're saying apparently no bugs were there. So yeah. it's even bug-free. Well, apparently it was ready to go, but, I mean, I can understand. To get, I think I've got a feeling to get a game released by Nintendo... You had to have something like 100,000 cartridges minimum order. Okay. And if they'd had like a couple of flops on the hand before that and they weren't convinced it was going to be a big hit, you can see why maybe. It's not like putting a... Today you can put a game on the internet. And also the rights are like for Battletoads and stuff. Because I was watching Ready Player One and the guy's leading the charge with the Battletoads. So I could could see a lot of uh, trademarks and stuff like that. That's the thing today. I mean, you can put a game up on Steam and you pay for your development, but kind of distribution costs you nothing now, does it? But if you're printing like 100,000 cartridges, putting them out in the shops and it flops, you lost millions, haven't you, there? So I see why they were a bit more cautious back then. But but keep an eye out for that. You know, if any copies do surface, we'll be the first to let you know. Right there, well, thank you for checking out the news this week. We will have more in next week's podcast that will be out on Friday. And right now it's time to reminisce about the days of Midway, Williams, Raven Software, with this week's special guest, Jake Simpson. Mortal Kombat! Listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event. Let's welcome on this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Jake Simpson. Hello. Now, we are calling you from America, but you uh, that accent's definitely not American. Well done. You know, most <laughs> Americans, I tell them, yeah, this is how we talk in Michigan. <laughs> so yeah, you... I'm, from, uh, I'm from Kent. So I'm from uh, a little town called Hern Bay. Uh, just north of Canterbury. I spent way too many years there, but I discovered where the railway station was, so I left. But we were saying before we did the interview, you still got your creature comforts out there. You've got a proper builder's tea on the go. 
Absolutely. So let's go back to like the start then, Jake. I mean, what was it that originally started your journey with computers and video games? Oh, so, so many years ago. I had a e- uh, woodworking teacher at school, uh, the Jeffrey Chaucer School, many years ago, and he was uh, a closet computer nerd. And um, he challenged myself and my friends to write something on uh, the computers of the day, the RML 380Z, these enormous, great steel uh, chassis computers that you, there were CPM computers that you had to load uh, the basic operating system off a disk. Um, and I wrote a page by page thing in basic that, that demonstrated how radio controlled cars worked. And it was purely done because he promised us a box of Mars bars, which he never delivered on, by the way. Um, and that started my interest with computers. And then the Commodore 64 came along. I mean, I had many different home computers because I worked part time in a computer store in Canterbury, mm. place uh, Kent Microsystems. And um, I eventually settled on the Commodore 64 as being my sort of target of joy. I wrote some basic stuff and then even got a basic compiler that, that sped it up and then moved into uh, assembly language programming. And it was really fueled by Jeff Minter over at Llamasoft. I remember the very first games I <coughs> pirated <coughs> um, being Attack of the Mutant Camels. And I was at the time too poor to actually pay for a joystick. So I learned to play Attack of the Mutant Camels on the keyboard. Oh, wow. the, uh, and I remember going to the Commodore show and meeting Jeff Minter for the very first time. And I was playing AMC. He had basically computers arranged outside of his little booth. And I was playing AMC on the keyboard. And he came out and looked at me and went, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm playing it on a keyboard because I don't have a mouse. Yeah, I don't have a joystick. And he came out and challenged me to a game where he played on the joystick and I played on the on the keyboard. And I beat him. Um, and that started a bit of a weird sort of friendship. Now I look back on it, you know. Not sure it was entirely appropriate because um, I used to. <laughs> I persuaded him to let me come and visit him in Tadley, in Hans, where he, his um, uh, office space was. He had a big building that was built on the side, big room built on the side of his parents' house, and I used to go and visit him. And he would show me the latest games like Sheep in Space and things like that. And I'd play him a bit, and we talk. He had arcade machines physically in his little office space. He had a um, Star Wars arcade machine, and he was so completely master of his own destiny. He knew what he wanted to do, and he had oodles of talent. I mean, the guy did all of his own artwork as well. And for that, I will hate him forever. Um, but the guy's just amazing. And I looked up to him and thought, that's what I want to be. Uh, he was the idol. And that's where I started. I, I wrote um, some stuff on the Commodore 64. And I ended up working for a small company uh, called Lin Micro, uh, Lin, Linsoft. That's right. And we did ports for EA mostly. We did a port of PHM Pegasus. Uh, from the Commodore 64 onto the Spectrum and the Amstrad. At the time, we did a, um, a port of both Archon games, Archon and Archon 2 Adept, which was really interesting. And I still think that those games are ripe for a revisit now. Actually, if EA still owns the, the IP for those, but those are really ripe for a, for a game now. Um, or with none, none of them with source code. We had to just play the game and work out what was going on from it. You mentioned the C64 there was your main platform. I mean, did you kind of have your sights on like the BBC Micro as well? Because I know that was quite a desirable machine back then, wasn't it? The BBC uh, was a much better machine. We had a lot of those at school, but I could see the the, the writing on the wall. I could even then I could see like the C64 was cheaper, um, and it was it was there was so much product from America at the time. You know, summer games and the Olymp- you know the sports games and all those joystick wagglers that destroyed your joysticks, those kinds of things. Um, 
And the the software for the BBC Micro, though it was better, you had Elite and you had um, Planetoid, which was the the Defender ripoff that was just so good. Um, and the, the 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 games were actually better on the CC on the the BBC Micro, but the C64 was going to have way greater market penetration if purely based on price, if nothing else, you know, had sprites, things like that, and a much better sound chip. Um, the BBC Micro, because it was in schools, and we always looked at it as, this is a more serious machine. The C64 was the games machine, as it were, you know? And that's why I targeted that more than the BBC Micro. Even then, at the time, there was always the fierce pitch battles between the the um, Spectrum owners, or the Sinclair Rectum owners, as we used to call them. Um, <laughs> He says, showing his allegiance. Oh, um, I'm dreading the tweets yeah. already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, the Spectrum was an absolutely wonderful machine. And now I look back on it, you know, when you're, when you're 12 years old, of course, you've got to have your, your battle standard and you've got to, you know, you're playing to the faithful. But now I look back on it, what Sinclair did for home computing in general. I mean, he pretty much single-handedly kick-started the entire British game development environment. There's no doubt about it. Um so yeah, what he did, whatever accolades are being laid at his door, they're not enough. You know, the the guy was just outstanding. Um, that the QL, the Quantum Heap, uh, was less impressive, mm. but the the Spectrums were really, really. You know, ZX eighty one and the Spectrums were just amazing machines for the time. But yeah, I targeted. I found the six five zero two easier to use than than the ZX eighty. Um, uh, indexing modes on the 6502 were just simpler to understand, I think. But anyway, what were the first? Com yeah. What were the first commercial products you kind of got paid for? You know, projects getting oh, involved. I wrote a uh, a keep a, a sort of a synth, a very very light ended synth thing, which was compiled on the basic that was sold under K Microsystems. Um, we had uh, the very first thing I would have been paid for was a really really good port of Arkanoid. Um, and that's actually how I came to the attention of Linsoft. Uh, I had a port of Arkanoid, which was full width screen width. Um, the one that Ocean actually released was not full screen width because of the, the whole page um, page thing. The, the, spec, the Commodore 64's uh, resolution was 320. And of course, you know, when you're using with an 8-bit computer that only goes up to 0 to 256, they only use part of the screen. Mine used the full screen. It was a significantly better version than the one that actually got released. But we dealt with Firebird. Um, the British telecom brand and Firebird looked at Arkanoid and looked at the fact that somebody Ocean had already got the rights or generic rights, I think, to Taedo's product at the time. But there was a lawsuit going on between Taedo and Atari because, you know, Arkanoid is very, very obviously a ripoff of, um, uh, of, um, oh God. Breakout? Yeah, Breakout, right. And they, you know, took Breakout and obviously went in new directions with it, uh, more power to them, but it was obviously a ripper. And this was the time, of course, that Apple was suing the crap out of Windows because of look and feel. So there was this lawsuit going on. And Firebird approached Atari and said, hey, if you win, can we do this? And Atari said, yeah, sure, no problem. We're going to win anyway. It's going to be no problem. So we went away and we kept developing it. And then, lo and behold, Atari lost. Nobody saw that coming. Everybody thought that Toyota was going to lose, but they didn't. And so our product got cancelled and the, 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 the Ocean one got put out there. And the Ocean one was, it was a, a pretty good port of an arcade game, but it was, it was technologically very inferior to what we were doing. Um, we even, in our product, even had a, a layout editor that was built into the game where you could generate your own. It was a separate product, actually, but it was a basic product that enabled you to lay out um, the, the, the levels for Arkanoid um, using a little product, a little basic program product, and it would print out what the, the data files were um, that you needed to then, you know, put into the game in order to actually, you know, be able to generate your own levels. So we're way ahead of the 
curve at the time, but it got cancelled. Well, you talked about the drama there with Atari. I mean, the industry then wasn't exactly free from drama. I know you had a bit of a uh, fallout with Domark at one point as well. Oh, yeah. What, what happened Dominic, there? Dominic and Strachan and Mark Wheatley. Oh, my goodness me. Those, were, those two guys were like... Yeah, oil and water. They were just awful people. To deal with. I mean, they just were. So um, we got approached by Domark. Domark had purchased the rights to all of the James Bond titles, um, and we, at Linsoft, actually we designed um, Live and Let Die. And so we went away and we started working on it. I mean, it was basically a boat racing game because if you Live and Let Die, a large portion of the of the the game is that boat race. Um, you know, along the the canals. Uh, in in the deep south of America, and we designed it and built it. And we started building both the Spectrum, the Commodore 64, the Amstrad, and the Atari um, ST and the Amiga versions of it. We had all four, five of them going at once, and we were you know chugging along, making progress. And then Domart switched our project manager on us to some other guy. This other guy had come from a software house. He'd been a developer, you know, a sort of project manager at a software house that did bumping buggies. Um, which was another arcade game. And there was similarity to the visuals of what we were going for. And um, before we knew it, we, our project had been cancelled. Um, and the original this guy had taken our product that we developed and designed to the original software house that he used to use, um, he was working for, rather, to do the, the port. And I'm fairly sure, I, mean, I can't say for certain, but I'm fairly sure there was a backhander involved at some point. Um, anyway, so we lost the product, and, and effectively that killed actually uh, Linsoft entirely. Uh, it was very frustrating. And I remember getting into a really knockdown, drag out shouting match at the Commodore show when this product was launched. Because I went to the Domark and I saw it and I was playing it and I went, yeah, it's just bullshit. So we, we were so close. You killed our software studio for what? And I got into a bit of a row with Dominic. Um, it was either Dominic Wheatley or Mark Strachan, I don't remember which. And that was the end of my involvement in video games for a little while. I, what with what had happened with Arkanoid and then this, it was like, yeah, it's kind of done. So I went away back to Hatfield Poly to finish off my degree and then um, went out to be a mainframe programmer, which was writing COBOL. Can you believe it? Oh, my God, I had to wear a tie. What was I thinking? Um, <clears throat> was that when you decided to kind of move to America? And uh, yes. why did you decide to move? Was it uh, Midway or Williams? No, no, kind no. Of... At the time, it was pure opportunity. Uh, I was I was working for British Telecom International, and it became clear that that the only way to, to progress in British BTI was to actually for someone to die. Uh, so short of hiring a hitman, there was no way I was going to move up. I was working for a really, really smart engineer who was much better than I was, and he couldn't move up either. So if he couldn't, there was no chance for me. So I did about 18 months there. I started looking around for a new job, and I saw a, an advert for contractors, consultants uh, out in the States, and I thought, I wonder if I could even get it. I wonder if even, you know, I was even any chance I could do it. And the next thing I know, I've got a British Airways ticket in my hand, I've got a visa stamp in my passport, and I'm going to go into Chicago. Right. So I spent about six months, eight months, no, about nine months, I think, working for this consultancy out in, uh, in, in uh, Chicago, I discovered that the contract that you sign in England is very different from the one you have to sign. They try and get you to sign immediately after you get off the plane because the one in England is not legal in the one, you know, in America. So they get you to sign another one. And it's not quite the same. And then I found that I was being put into to clients and I was being charged at twice as much as the American consultants were, but I was actually earning one third less um, so they were pocketing the difference and me being my father's son, I kind of had things to say about that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that didn't go down well. So, uh, but that it, during the meanwhile, I had met my wife to be. So 
you know, to cut a long story short, I ended up marrying her. And the course of the moment I married her, I got a green card and yeah, then I could work for anybody. And I had been at that point uh, communicating with Midway. I'd actually reached out and it was they weren't even Midway at that time. They were actually still w, uh, Williams, Bally Midway. They were Williams. Um, and I went through a long interview process. I did seven interviews, I think, because you had to work, you had to interview with everybody in the video department at that point, because you, because the products chopped and changed so much, you never knew who it was that you might end up working with. So you had to interview with everybody and any one person could say no, and you were done. So I interviewed with everybody. I even had to get, um, my mom, my mother to send me out some discs from England, some Amiga discs from England, stuff that I'd been working on, um, to show them that I could write code and, you know, I just sit and do a programming test for an afternoon. It was quite, it was involved, but I, I finally got the job, which was surprising. But well, I mean, obviously then you were working um, for Williams and they had yeah. some massive hits. I mean, they were a huge gaming company. I mean, what was it like to be in the center of all that and working there at that point? God, it was like the wild west. I mean, it, it, there's, the teams were small. There were teams were like five people, um, two engineers, three artists. I mean, the, Mortal Kombat, for example, it was four, there's three people. It was Ed Boon, John Tobias, and John Vogel. John Tobias was the visual guy who decided, to, and he wrote the backstory and did the visual style. John Vogel did all the backgrounds, and Boon did all the programming himself. Um, the next one, they they added a couple of people, a couple of artists for backgrounds, extra backgrounds from Mortal Kombat 2. But it was small, and there was almost no oversight. Um, we were allowed to go for licenses. Uh, Terminator 2 was a good case in point. Um, there were some great Terminator 2 stories. A great story would be, for example, they had no character designs for the future show soldiers because they hadn't shot any of that yet. When the movie hadn't shot any of that yet, when um, the game needed to start shooting some of their stuff, they had the script. They knew what was going to happen in Terminator 2. They weren't allowed to take the script off of the uh, off of the soundstage, though. They got to read it and then walk away, and that was it. Um, but they had no idea of what the the future soldiers were going to look like. So. In the end, they couldn't wait. They, you know, schedules being what they were, they had to get the job done. So Jack went to a local, Jack Hager was the art director on that. Jack went to a local um, army surplus store and just bought a whole bunch of stuff, took it back to the office, laid it all out, sort of put together a basic kind of costume, took photographs of it and sent that to Lightstorm, to James Cameron over at Lightstorm. Cameron apparently took a look at it and went, yeah, yeah, that's okay. And then sent it to his costume designer and said, that's what our bad guys, that's what our future soldiers are going to look like in Terminator 2. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that actually came from the, the video game. You know, the, those, there, were, there was no fear of going for licenses. Um, at one point, we actually had a game on, the, on the, the drawing boards I was involved in that was going to be a Highlander game. And it was going to be kind of a Mortal Kombat-y type fighting game, uh, with, but with swords. And there were some clever moves where, like, if you were you were impaled on a sword, you'd actually pull yourself down onto the sword and then use yours to decapitate the guy who just impaled you, things like that. Um, we actually had that on the drawing board, and we were just about ready to sign on the dotted line when some of our developers got cold feet. Um, and so we sort of passed on it. But, yeah, there was... There was virtually no oversight. We got freedom to sort of build prototypes of anything we felt like. But there was this expectation of sales. I mean, Mortal Kombat came along and just smashed all the records out of the window. And then immediately after that came NBA Jam, which was a four-player game. And it was just even more sales. Um, 
the, the biggest problem was that because of the pressure to release more sequels as quickly as possible, you ended up cannibalizing your own sales. Like, for example, Mortal Kombat 3 sold half as many actual cabinets as Mortal Kombat 2 did, but it sold an awful lot more what are called kits. And so the idea is that with a kit, you sell a control panel, you sell the boards, and you sell the artwork, some sticker artwork and a marquee. And the idea is that you cannibalize an existing cabinet that already exists, take out, you know, replace the control panel and re- put some stickers on the side, put the marquee on top, replace the boards, and off you go. And that's what you know, Mortal Kombat 3 started cannibalizing Mortal Kombat 1 cabinets that were already out there in the world. Um, yeah, anyway, it was, a, it was an exciting time, though. Um, there was a, a de- large degree of arrogance as well, though. I mean, we all had it because we were considering ourselves to be the best in the world. And there was a, you know, get those kinds of games, those arcade games are what we call dip games. And that means you can dip in and out of it. An average game, you know, the idea of uh, an arcade game was that we were supposed to take a, a quarter or a take a credit, I should say, not a quarter, because uh, there was a complete abstraction between what the actual value was and what operators could set it to be. You were supposed to take a credit every 45 seconds. That's how it was wow. meant to be. Um, that's what you were targeting. And it was much harder to do that with story-based games, things like uh, Revolution X or um, Terminator 2, than it was with uh, with NBA Jam. NBA Jam had replay value because you were always playing against another person. Whereas once you bought your way all the way through um, Revolution X or Terminator 2, you'd seen it. There's no real reason to come back to it again. So there was a lot more turning towards those kinds of, you know, person-on-person game. At Midway, there was a, a, a hockey game they did. There was supposed to be a driving game. Then Cruising USA came along. And all of these are, you know, head-to-head competition. Um, one thing we did figure out, though, is that we could tell how successful a game was likely to be by how much bad language it generated from the developers. You know, if you have people playing this game, I mean, the the, the words that used to echo out of Boot, uh, um, uh, Boone's office would tell you, you know, whether people are having a good time. Get the f- blah, blah, blah off my bridge, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, some of the, the abusive language that got handed out to each other was really, really heavy duty. And it's funny because it all tied in with what, uh, John Romero was talking about with Doom, you know, he was pretty foul mouthed when he was playing Deathmatch as well. And we we used to use it as a barometer of how good is this game, you know, how much do people want to play it based on how much bad language they threw at each other. Well, I remember for me, Mortal Kombat was one of my most vivid memories. Is like, I think I was about 11 when that game came out, seeing it in the arcades. And I think I was awake like Pontins or something when I first saw it. And just kids were crowding around it all night. And we'd never seen anything like that. The digitized characters in the game as well and the blood. I mean, was that kind of Midway's golden egg when that franchise came out? I'd say so, yeah. Ed Ed had worked previously on a football game um, and he wanted to do something with big sprites and he had a uh, Street Fighter 2 in his office and he wanted to do a much, much faster version of Street Fighter 2 because Street Fighter 2 is a fairly slow game. It's a lot more strategic than, than MK is. MK was designed to be a button masher. Anyone could be successful and you could just walk up button mash and the guy would do things and the ai was so brain dead on the first few levels that you would be successful so he had everything all combined inside of there he had the success of 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 a player playing it you felt powerful you that the sound stuff the dan ford and sound stuff was very meaty and juicy it felt you know when you had a good successful thump on somebody it really felt good i could tell you some other stories but ed would would really kill me about um about what some of the audio actually in that game is, but I'm not going to go into that because that's just really bad news. Um, so 
yeah, Dan Felton's toasty. And that's because he used to come into Ed's office and play it. And he would say things. And there's, there was a whole bunch of other phrases that didn't make it into the game. I remember um, Eric Kincaid, uh, another artist who worked on MK3, I think it was. And he was, he was all about the bull, bull every time you, you know, he took somebody out. We were amazed, though, at some of the results or the, some of the commentary that came out uh, from Mortal Kombat. I remember one distributor rang up midway to ask if there was a rape scene in it. And we were sort of looking at each other going, it's a video game. Why would you put, why would you do that? Why would you do that? I mean, that's just, you know. But then again, I suppose, yeah, it was pretty well, violent for what it was. How did Midway kind of keep Mortal Kombat series fresh and, you know, come up with new innovations? Because I remember there was all, still the finishing moves in the first one as well. And babalities yeah. and friendship moves came in, didn't they? they yeah, that came, the babalities came... I think they were in three actually and and some of those actually came from just reading message boards and seeing what other people were saying people claiming to have seen things that certainly were not in the game i mean error macro error macro is just but that was just code that was a text message left in the code base um because it was part of the compilation process that's all it was and then people were seeing this and go oh there's a character called error macro well, no there wasn't but there wasn't the second one because they picked up on it and went yeah right why not um you know the the noob cybot that's boone and tobias backwards and some of it, like I said, the babalities and the, the animalities, they came purely from suggestions of seeing people talking about it. People saying they'd said they they'd seen it, it wasn't there. So we thought, well, well stick it in, why not? Well, I remember, sure. I remember at school, I mean, you kind of fell into two camps. I guess whether you had a Mega Drive or a SNES, but was um, was Street Fighter Two seen as the main rival? So at school, oh, it was yeah. always Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter Two. No, Street Fighter Two. Although, I mean, I'll tell you a story about the original Mortal Monday. Was was that was quite entertaining because, of course, my, um, Midway had made a big boob. They had sold the rights for all of their games to a claim uh, to do ports for. It was a generic deal. It wasn't a very specific game by game. They just sold the rights for like the next five years to all of the games that Mort- that, that Midway put out. And of course, Mortal Kombat rolls along and the claims rubbing their hands. They went away. They, they got this software house. I think it was Iguana, I think it was, I'm sure, to do a port. And they did not do a line for line port. What they did was they played the game and then tried to create their own version of it. And it was not good. And I remember Ed being very, very upset. And he would not give approval for this thing to be released. But in the meantime, uh, a claim has gone away, spent millions on this whole Mortal Monday commercial. You remember the, the kid in the yeah. street in the, oh, Mortal Kombat, you know, all that. Um, they uh, they spent a lot of money and they were all set to produce this and ready to go. And Ed would not release it. He would not sign his approval. They actually sent him a lawsuit on the Friday before the Mortal Monday to force him to actually sign approval so they could actually sell this game on the on the Monday. He was that unhappy with what was uh, what was put out there in the world. The MK2, I think it was Probe that did that one. Um, that was a line-for-line port, and we were everyone was much, much happier about that. But there was a lot of degree of frustration at Midway that the amount of earning potential that, that the individual developers could make was very, very limited because of this $5 million deal that Neil Nakasho had made with Acclaim to, for every game to go out there, you know, the same with NBA Jam. Um, there was a lot of frustration that, that, that they, it wasn't being done in-house and, yeah, it's kind of funny looking back on it now because compared to what came later, I mean, you look at the, the latest Mortal Kombat game versus like the first couple. But I remember reading, you know, so many reports about how violent the game was and it did get a lot of that in the press and it was one of the games that was responsible for age ratings coming in in video games as well. I mean, did you kind of enjoy that at Midway? Did you kind of thrive upon it? It wasn't, it, it wasn't something that... It, it, the environment was so insular. It's very like Valve is now... People disappear into Valve and they don't come out again. They just stop talking to all their friends. It's a very weird little sort of 
echo chamber. And, and Midway was the same. We didn't really talk to our external developers. We didn't hire. We only hired one external developer from EA, and he didn't. That didn't go down well. It didn't didn't end well. Um, it was very insular. We weren't really listening very much. You know. Everyone was so wrapped up with how great they were because they worked for Midway in the first place. It was a huge, like I said, a huge degree of arrogance, really, um, that they weren't really looking at what the world was saying very much. We were just wrapped up in our, hey, can can our next game make as much as the last one did? Um, that's really what everyone was looking at. Well, one thing we heard about, you know, I'm a massive fan of 2000 AD, and one thing we heard about was a kind of side-scrolling Judge Dredd game oh, that got yeah. cancelled. It's, it's out in Maine. If you can, if you get a... The, the ROMs are actually out on MAME. That was actually my first product. Um, and there was people talking about doing it when I got there. And there was talk of this movie as well with uh, Stephen Sylvester Stallone. And that was the first product. And we modeled it. It was modeled on um, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. We had a four-player version of that sitting in our offices that we were playing. It was modeled on that. And we had some real problems with it because Neon Castro, there, there had been the success of Mortal Kombat. Neon Castro desperately, what he wanted was a side-scrolling Mortal Kombat. And he kept trying to make us, make Judge Dredd, a side-scrolling um, uh, Mortal Kombat. And we, you know, it, we had internal qualities. I remember John Spire saying to, to, to Neon Castro, look, Judge Dredd is, is not Bruce Lee. Judge Dredd is, is um, make my day. He's uh, Clint Eastwood, right? He's not... And, but yeah. we had to do this because that's not Neil persuaded me, told us to do. And so we had one side-scrolling level that was just punching, and then we had another one that had guns, and then we had intermediary levels with a with a, a, a shooting gallery, and then we also had a car, a bike trace in there as well, which was top-down, very looked very much like um, a really nice version of um, Spy Hunter. Um, we had a wrestling level where we had Precious uh, McKenzie in there. And then we had the final levels where we judged death. And we actually used the same modeler that modeled um, Goro uh, in Judge Dredd. Um, now, we put this thing out on test. We, we were not even remotely earning the same kind of money as NBA Jam or, or Mortal Kombat. And for some reason, we kind of we the team just lost lost faith with it. We never actually released the full product, which is a shame. We really should have done. We never finished that last level. Um, the last level was almost complete. We never actually finished it and put it out there. Uh, and we really should have just put it out there. Um, and like I said, it's someone. There was only four arcade games that were ever actually made. I had one. Mine got destroyed years ago. Um, and the other three guys had one. One of those guys, and I don't know which one, put his 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 ROMs that he had in his machine into MAME. And you can actually download the Judge Dredd game in MAME. It's there. I've got to have a try on that, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But those I mean, kind of games were big then. I mean, you had like Turtles and The Simpsons as well. So it kind of made sense that yeah. that, that genre was, uh, was going to be explored, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we should have released it, but, you know, it was just, it was a bad decision and that was, that was a wrong decision, but never mind, you know. Well, one Hindsight's big, always twenty twenty. Well, one big franchise that you did work on, um, you know, it was a golden age of wrestling then. I remember every kid at school was oh, into God. it. Oh, God. WWF yeah, WrestleMania. Yeah, WWF was great. We we had so much fun with that, and we got all the wrestlers came in coming in when they because when they came through Chicago, they would come into the offices and we'd shoot them, you know, on the green screen or blue screen as it was then. Um, and it was fascinating. We got to meet all these guys, and they were they were really interesting, funny guys. Like Doink the Clown and, and Lex Luger and all those people. Um, I remember Yoko Zuna. That man was four hundred pounds. He was huge. Um, 
he would have for lunch, he would have like four chicken sandwiches. And we, when we went out, we went to this bar that was out by the airport that was a notorious wrestling. And he would, instead of having like, you know, a, a vodka and tonic, he'd have a pint of it. I mean, there was no way he was going to survive with the, the strain on his heart. And of course he didn't. He died, you know, relatively young as a, with a, of a heart attack, which is entirely unsurprising. But yeah, they were a nice bunch. They were fun. That game went through an awful lot of, um, of iterations, though. We, we couldn't figure out how to get the holding and breaking the holding stuff. We tried multiple different ways of trying that. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And they were like big stars back then as well, weren't they? They were, yeah. It was a it was a big deal to have that game. We had a lot of fun making that. I remember, God, working at two o'clock in the morning with with Mark Trammell and trying to put these combos and put moves in and just getting animations from the from the animating guys from Saldivida and just plowing them in, plowing them in as quickly as possible. Yeah. That was a did lot you, of fun. Did you was. ever have a wrestle in the office? <laughs> well, it turns out, weirdly, um, the wrestlers themselves are on the road a lot. I don't think you understand, you guys understand the UK, because you, you sort of see WrestleMania and that was it. And, but they're, they're doing shows every other night in each different cities, right? They're just traveling. It's like a traveling circus. There's usually two or three of these things on the go at any given time. So these wrestlers are just never home. Their phone bills were outrageous. And uh, one of the wrestlers, Bret Hart, took a real shine to one of our art guys, uh, Sal DeVita, who was, you know, fairly well-muscled individual himself. And they would talk. I remember sitting in Sal's office and he would sit there and spend an hour talking to Bret Hart because Bret's just sitting in this hotel doing nothing. Couldn't go out because they were too famous. So he's, he's, you're a captive in the hotel and he would, he would call Sal and just talk for an hour to, uh, with him. It was quite a weird situation, really. Well, having the game as well, I mean, I know it probably saved a lot of bruises in the playground so we could play it on screen rather than doing it in the playground. <laughs> yeah. well, there's a video, actually, that goes, there's a promotion video. And I don't know, you might find it on YouTube if you look hard. There is a promotion video, which is really hilarious. It was shot by internally. And it has uh, uh, Bret Hart in his full you know, costume coming into Midway. And he puts a tie on. He's got his costume on. He puts a tie on and carries a briefcase. And he's sitting in the conference room describing what the game's going to be and literally picks up one of the guys who is actually Sal DeVita, picks up one of the guys in a suit and body slams him into the table. <laughs> and then you see him sort of, you know, constructing the, the, the cabinets themselves and driving a portlift truck around and building the cabinets. And then he's sitting in my office at that time, showing us in the code where things were wrong and like, oh, you're dereferencing a null pointer and somebody gets hit. And it, do you know what I mean? It was, it was him doing all of the work to make a WrestleMania game. And it was absolutely hilarious. If I can find that, I'll put that in the show notes. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you also uh, did some work with the legendary Eugene Jarvis as well. How oh, was that? Eugene. Wow. Eugene is amazing. He is an absolute super genius. And the weird thing about it is when you meet him and the way he talks, you, you, you honestly, you look at him and you go, really? That's a super genius, really? And he's, <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> and he's, you know, he can be occasionally a bit raw as well, um, uh, particularly when it comes to the opposite sex. Um, but I remember sitting in my office and I was doing some, uh, some friction, uh, equations, trying to work out, you know, a simple way of doing some friction and doing ball overlap. So, you know, like imagine playing pool, for example, where balls bounce off each other. And I'd spent three days going through equations. I had them all written up on the grease board and I was just trying to work out the best way to put this into, into code. 
And somebody said to me, oh, yeah, Eugene did some of that. It's Mark Tremell actually said, yeah, Eugene did some of that on um, Smash TV. Um, yeah, he found a fast way to do it. You should go and talk to Eugene. So I wandered into Eugene's office and I said, hey, Eugene, how are you? Uh, how do you do this? And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he produced from memory all of the equations I just spent three days poring over in physics books. He produced them all from memory, drew them up on the grease board. He's like, yeah, you do this. You do I'm like, bloody hell. And then he goes, and all of that's crap. This is how you do it. You know, you, you do percentage of overlap from origin, from the two origins, percentage of overlap, and you send them in the delta direction of where the overlap is by, you know, multiplied by by the amount of overlap. And I'm like, holy crap. And I went away and tried it that afternoon and it worked absolutely perfectly. And I, that was the moment I was like, oh my God, he really is the real deal. This guy is, yeah. Well, as the 90s went on, um, you left Midway and moved to Raven Software. Oh, yeah, can I jump in, Dave? Well, I want to tell a quick story here because yeah, I remember yeah, talking sure. about, um, about uh, uh, Jeff Minter earlier on. Well, um, Jeff had, you know, I'd still very vaguely sort of kept in touch with Jeff and he had mentioned that he wanted to do a Robotron type game. And he was actually going to be out at CES, which was in Chicago. So unbeknown to him, I said, oh, I'll meet you there. You know, he was at the Atari booth. I think the new one was, was all the rage at the time. He was, he was coding the very first uh, Tempest version, I think, for new one at the time. Um, and I said, I'll meet you there at this show. And I show up. And I'm like, hey, Jeff, how you doing? And he's like, oh, hey, Jake, how you know? We've grown up a lot. Well, and I said, I, somebody I want to introduce you to. And I introduced him to Eugene Jarvis because I brought Eugene with me. So I was able to introduce my hero to his hero. It was a really great cosmically circular we, um, afternoon. It was a, we spent the whole afternoon with Eugene. L literally, Jeff just dropped everything and went, oh, I saw this, I'm leaving the booth. And we spent, <laughs> he spent the afternoon with Eugene showing him, Eugene showing him what was going to be Crash uh, Smash USA or crap, uh, whatever it was, the, the driving game he worked on, Cruising USA, that's right. Um, and it was a, it was just a, it was one of the best days of my professional career, being able to to, to take the guy that I admired mainly and, and show him his his guy, you know. Yeah, it must have been amazing to witness that. It was great, yeah. So anyway, yeah, moving on to Raven. Why the move then? Well, there was two several reasons. Um, the project I was working on, Carnival, I, I didn't really believe in it that much. Um, added to which I could see the writing on the wall. When I joined Midway, there were over 6,000 arcades in the USA. Four, five years later, there were 2,500, and we were selling more and more to what are called street locations, which is things like the, uh, the reception area, the, the, the lobby of a, of a movie theater or a 7-Eleven or something like that. Um, and we were selling less and less wood, less and less cabinets, because there were so many cabinets out there, you were just, you know, you were, you were selling kits. I could see the writing on the wall. You could see the consoles. The PlayStation 1 had come out, and that was powerhouse um that had power comparable to some of the stuff that we had, had had our hands on in the arcade the things that we were able to hold on to were control mechanisms you know you can't get the the, the, the steering wheel kind of environment that cruising usa had on the home consoles at least not then anyway um i could see the writing on the wall i knew arcades were going and midway in chicago had no interest in dealing with the consoles they were there was still, everyone was still in the, the arcade set. They bought a studio in San Diego to do the ports of arcade games um, because the acclaim deal had run out. You know, I don't know. It was just this, this very much an attitude of this is going to go on forever and I could see it wasn't. And we were looking at things like Doom uh, and, and Quake and how great they were. And I wanted to work on first-person shooters. And Raven was, you know, two hours away. So why not? I went to Raven and had a, had a really good time. Um, I got to work on the first-person shooter games that I really want, was enjoying playing at the time. So, well, as you, as you said, kind of 
first-person shooters, you know, they ruled the world in the 90s. and uh, They certainly did, yeah. Moving on from that, uh, kind of Mortal Kombat and the uh, fighting games, you must have kind of seen this as the new place to be. It was, and, it, and, it's, and I was lucky. I mean, I walked out of the golden age of Midway and walked into the golden age at uh, Raven. And I don't think that had anything to do with me. I, that was purely serendipitous timing on my part. There's no question about that. Nothing really, it, nothing to do with me. But... I got to work on Heretic 2. That was a project that they just just starting as I got there. We did that in nine months from start to finish with a, with a crew of about 30. We were really, really happy with that game. And then we released it and we came out three days before Half-Life, which was a year late, by the way. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's nice. We got completely steamrolled by Valve, which is a shame, but never mind. Um, I think that, that, that I would say for my purposes, though, the Heretic 2 was probably the best development experience of my life to date. It was just tremendous. Everybody was rowing in the same direction. Everybody knew what we were making. Everybody had their heads down. We were just plowing ahead. We were using the Quake 2 engine. It was it was a great experience. I made friends there that I will, will still visit today. In fact, funny enough, uh, on Thursday, I'm going to, Los Angeles, to, to Las Vegas to meet up with friends who are still at Raven and some that have moved on to Epic and other places. We have a, an annual reunion. That's, that's the kind of friends that I made at that time. So... Raven was absolutely a powerhouse of talent. There's no question about it. Well, with everybody kind of using Unity and Unreal Engine and stuff now, they kind of forget how important the Quake engine really was. And all the, all the mods coming out. And uh, did you have any crazy favorite mods or anything like that? Um, well, my favorite mod was always um, uh, Rocket. Oh God, what was it called? A oh, rocket jumping. It was, it oh. was uh, yeah, but it was the it was a particular mod that was worked on by a team in England, um, and they went on to become Splash Damage. Um, Paul, I can't remember his name. There's a story there where where at the time there was a huge internal rivalry between Raven and Grey Matter at uh, at Activision. They were both Activision Studios, and there was this huge internal rivalry. And I remember going to QuakeCon. And I was told by Brian Raffle that he, I had to try and recruit these guys to work with Raven because he didn't want them to go and work with um, with Grey Matter. And I got there and I talked to them for about ten minutes. And it was clear that they were not going to work for anybody. They were they were their own group. Paul Wedgworth, that's his name, right? And I remember saying to Paul, right, well I've done my bit for Raven. Then you're not going to work for us. That's fine. Now here's what you should do: go away and form your own company and get id Software to pay for it because they are desperate to have a professional team come out of the mod environment because then it really validates their engine, which is exactly what was happening at the time and that's exactly what they did and they they became splash damage and splash damage has had a fair degree of success and they've just sold themselves i think to a chinese company for 45 million pounds so i think paul did okay you know <laughs> i mean getting back to heretic heretic 2 i was a big fan of the original you know heretic and hexen they were great games mm-hmm. when you're working on the sequel i mean what were you trying to improve over the original game well, there was an interesting interesting thing because at the time, uh, John Romero was just still, I think, at, at id, and he was the original producer because they were actually id games. Heretic and Hexen, even though they were made by Raven, they were actually produced by id. Um, and I remember he, uh, John Romero had a plan for three different games. There was supposed to be Heretic, Hexen, and Hecatomb was supposed to be the third, the third one. And we we did Hexen 2, I know, and then there was supposed to be a third game called Hecatomb, and that never never actually materialized. And John had left, um, and there was a strong desire. I mean, all of the Raven were very, very much um, fantasy guys. They were really big into that. And so the, the design, the urge was to go down this path of having a third-person game um, that was mostly melee, and that's really what they wanted to do. And it's funny because... 
a whole bunch of people from Raven had split off just before I got there. The original Hexen uh, Heretic team, actually, in fact, um, had split off to form Human uh, Human Head Studios, and they were across town. There was a fair bit of bad, bad blood between the, the the principals of those two studios for quite some time because the guys at Raven had felt very much like, you know, you only exist because you, we allowed you to work on this product, and this is how you repay us kind of thing. Um, a lot of that's mellowed now, but at the time there was, you know, but I walked into the middle of it, not really understanding the political landscape. And I was friends with both sets. And it was it was uh, t- torturous times at the uh, at the time. I remember being summoned into p- various people's offices and told to stop talking about the guys from Human Head because, you know, they were perce- perceived as persona non grata. But anyway, yeah, the heretic was really it was a, it was their big fantasy play. That's what they wanted to do. Well, I imagine Raven must have worked very closely with Id Software then. Yeah, oh yeah. When we were working on um, Star Trek Elite Force, for example, we were working off a pre-release version of the Quake 3 engine. Um, and we actually had access, directly access, to their, um, S- their SourceSafe repository. And we were the only studio that, that could actually fix things inside of the engine. And Id would take our fixes just completely in verbatim. Um, you know, for example, um, let's, like one of the things about Quake 3 at the time that everyone was talking about was the NURB rendering, where you could get these big, big tubes, you know, these very fleshy looking tubes because it had um, specular values on it. So these very fleshy looking tubes that could pulse and all oh, the rest like of it inside the engine. Do you, do you remember that? Yeah, the plasma Sorry? kind of tubes. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, I remember. That was, that was a, they were defined using NURBs and then there was a bit of complicated code that churn, turned that into um, vertex arrays and then uh, rendered them, which was great. But um, physics didn't work on them. You couldn't put them on the floor and then have characters run around on them because they, because um, the the mesh was generated from a nerve. The the math didn't work. So Carmack's response to that not working was to basically tell his people, don't put these things on the floor. Only ever put them on the walls and the ceiling, and that way you can't walk on them. So they never actually fixed the physics on it because he was. You know, Carmack is an, is a, a, a very much a pragmatist. So he basically said, well, we're not going to spend the time to fix this. We're not going to bother. So, you know, and because id Software is a engineering driven, or at least it was then, an engineering driven studio, Carmack could afford to say these things and make it stick. But when you take that engine to an artist driven studio like Raven was, you know, Brian Raffle was originally a, a level designer. He's very much a man with a, with a keen eye to what the visuals look like in the art. You know, he was very much that, that the attitude there was, well, this should work, and if it doesn't, make it work. So we had to go in and fix a lot of the things that it didn't fix because it was just saying, well, don't do that then. We didn't have the power to say, don't do that then at Raven, so we had to fix it. Um, so there was a lot of that going on. We fixed their sound system. In fact, I, I dropped in the 3D sound system that they took verbatim as well. Um, we, you know, there's lots of small little fixes that we put into place, but it was, you know, most of it was. 99.9% was was um, Carmack and his absolute genius at architecture. There's nobody I've ever seen who's done who does architecture as well as Carmack does. Well, you've worked on tons of titles over the last years. You know, we could go on for hours about this. But um, yeah. one title I'd like to talk about would be Soldier of Fortune because you mentioned <laughs> kind of... Yeah. You mentioned um, Half-Life being a changing point. Soldier of Fortune had a very kind of not similar but a a story-led idea and you know the training in it was very good i kind of loved loved the way that it set up that game well soldier of fortune started life actually as castle wolfenstein raven had put together a castle wolfenstein demo for uh, id software 
And we were hoping to, for them to grant us the license, just like we did at Heretic and Hexen. Or so. They were going to grant, the idea was to get them to grant us a license to actually um, develop a Castle Wolfenstein game. Um, and we presented them with the demo. And the demo was great. It had a lot of the, the building destruction and stuff like that in it that, that Soldier Fortune ended up having. And it went, oh, yeah, this is terrific. This is great. We, we love this. We love this. This is terrific. And then handed the license to Grey Matter and said, hey, look, Raven's done this. Isn't it great? Can you make, you know, you make it better? And that was the genesis of the whole feud between Grey Matter and, and Raven in the first place, to be honest with you. Um, and But we're left with this demo that we put together. And we're like, well, what do we do with it? Uh, and we talked to Activision. And Activision said, well, we've got this one license that we don't really know what to do with. Uh, do you think it would fit? And we were like, what's that? And they said, Soldier of Fortune. And we were like, because remember, Soldier of Fortune is a magazine. Mm. Um it's for, for wannabe mercenaries and it sells, does reviews of guns and all the rest of it. Um, we sort of looked at it and went, well, maybe it'll fit. I don't know. We ended up talking to the publishers and the publishers said, hey, you, should, you need a consultant. And we got this guy, um, to, uh, John Mullins. John came to visit us and he was fascinating. I mean, this guy lived the life and done the things. And frankly, if, if 50% of the story, 25% of the stories that he tells are actually real, um, then man, this this man has lived life, and I discovered um, that most of the stories were actually real uh, from because I ended up going to the Soldier of Fortune convention in uh, Las Vegas to demo the game, and I got to meet a whole bunch of his friends and associates and ex SAS people and Green Berets and all the rest of it, and, they, and SEALs, all people that he knew, and they would sit around and tell, talk about these stories that that you know we we'd gotten hints of. And they would flesh in all the details. And it was like, oh, my God, that's real. Holy crap. You know, John was telling me stories about how he used to he had one on a mission he was on where he was protecting someone's uh, kid um, and it all f- fell apart. And he had to walk into Jerusalem with a broken neck, with a with a towel wrapped around his head. And I'm like, yeah, that's not true. That's not real. But no, talking to some of these other guys who were involved in the action, it was like, wow, this is real. Anyway, um, so John gave us all sorts of hints and, and uh, you know, just like what the sound of the, the, the tink, tink, tink of, of um, uh, bullets casing sound like when you're in combat, things like that. And that's where a lot of Soldier of Fortune came from was his advice. Um, and we we just went hog wild with it. It was all very ridiculous and out over the top and blood spurts everywhere. And we had the Smith and Western dance when you got shot with a machine pistol. <laughs> yeah. It was all very over the top. And I remember at the time, I remember Senator Joe Lieberman over here in the States uh, complaining very, very bitterly about violence and video games. And of course, the two games that he actually picked on and had a right go about was Mortal Kombat and Soldier of Fortune. And I am the only man on earth who worked on both. There's a theme. <laughs> Public enemy number one. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, we do generally say on this show, you know, we are the retro hour. Generally, the year 2000-ish is kind of our cut-off point. But we, we couldn't wind up this conversation, Jake, without letting Ravi ask about The Sims because he's such a big fan of The Sims. Ah, The Sims. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was, uh, I went from... Uh, I went from from Raven to EA, mainly because I was looking to be to be trained. One of the things about Raven is that there was there's not a lot of training in terms of if you want to become a manager, they'll make you a manager, but you don't have any clue how to do it. And and so I wanted to go somewhere that would actually train me. Plus, I wanted to build something rather than blow stuff up. Remember, I've been working on Mortal Kombat and you know, blowing up stuff up for many, many years, and I wanted to work on something that was actually a construction kind of environment. So anyway, yeah, so I'll ask you questions, dude. Yeah, I, I was just a massive fan of the game. And what was it kind of like working with Will Wright and the whole Maxis oh, Will's another, another genius. Will is the smartest man alive I know who can 
point out to you your flaws in your argument without talking down to you and making you feel stupid. I mean, you still end up feeling stupid because the guy is just such a massive intellect. But still, I remember uh, calling him in on one of the things I was going to change on since two. And I went through the presentation of what I was going to do and what I was going to do it. And at the end of it, he went, yeah, that makes sense. He said, but what are you going to do about blah, blah, blah? And it's this one thing that, of course, I haven't considered and covered. And I'm like, oh, get back to you on that one. You walk out feeling like four feet tall because the guy, he's really the real deal as well. Another incredibly smart individual. Um, It's great that he's kind of had a vision since the original SimCity to kind of, you know, this full 3D environment is kind of like his whole sim idea has gone. Well, hold on, hold on. Let's talk about this sim idea because sim idea isn't actually his. Well, sim um, brick. <laughs> so, sim so rock, what yeah. happened was the original game of The Sims was called Dollhouse and it was purely architectural. It was actually on a Mac too. It wasn't on uh, on a PC. It was on a Mac. Um, it was called Dollhouse and it was purely architectural. It was you, you just built environments and The Sims were introduced into the environment to judge your architecture, what you, uh-huh. the way that you built a house. They would design to walk around the house and look at what you've done, and then they would give you their judgment on it. That's what The Sims were originally for. And then it became clear that, you know, you had to direct The Sims' attention to certain things because they weren't like, you know, if you put in a nice arch or something, they were ignoring it. So you wanted to highlight the arch and get The Sims to go over there and look at it. And slowly, all of a sudden, it became so much more fun to play with The Sims than it did to actually build the thing in the first place. And that's when it swapped from becoming a dollhouse to The Sims, and it stopped across to a PC product. And there was also an awful lot of women designers on the team. There was actually 50% women on The Sims' original design team. Um, And their impact was just were amazing in terms of the things that they they wanted to do and the whole social interaction environment system was originally generated by women but will took it and ran with it and designed it but it was originally pushed by some of the the female designers on the team in the first place well when i was doing a bit of research for our chat tonight jake i mean i did read a quote from you back in 1999 Um, which I'm sure you can't remember. Uh, But in 99, you said that you imagine what the future would be like in 20 years. And you said by then, we'll have moved beyond virtual reality glasses and gloves and that kind of technology. And it'll be more like the movie Strange Days where we'll all all end up kind of in in that world. I mean, are you disappointed that we haven't quite reached that yet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, a little bit. Um, the, the, The problem, I think AR is really where it's going to end up going. VR is a stepping stone in the direction of AR. A lot of the problems that v, uh, AR has to solve, you know, are the same problems that VR has to solve. Um, but AR has to solve even more. Um, you know, trying to get the lighting right for your immediate environment, for example, is a big thing. Um, VR, I think, is is fascinating. But I think we've hit a niche in terms of it. The problem is it's been released too early because it's too expensive. The friction to actually setting up a VR headset right now is too great. It's expensive. You know, you're spending four or five hundred dollars just on the headset. And then you've got to have a PC with a 1080 graphics card in it to run it. Um, you know, you're looking at things like the Rift and you have to make sure you've got USB three ports that actually have sufficient speed to run it. There's just too much friction for it. Um, and the, the rendering demands on it for 90 frames per second on each eye is, is staggering too. So, But VR has a much, much greater immersive experience because of the fact that you are so very visually there. We used it on uh, Ready Player One uh, to, a, to a huge success on the stage of Ready Player One. When we were shooting the movie, we used a lot of VR stuff. Um, I think... 
you know, I'd like to believe that we're still on the trajectory that I spoke about. We just it's more 50 years than than 20 years. Um, the technology in Moore's law just hasn't caught up with the requirements that are necessary. I don't think VR is going to go away. I think it's here to stay. I think it's a niche product, though, at this current time. And until it's a 200 pound you know, impulse buy where you can buy your glasses and they're still going to last all day. And you've got the mixture of Yelp and Facebook and, and, and Google Maps all mixed together inside of this virtual, this um, this AR experience. We're not really going to see what it really could be. Uh, and we're still 20 years off that at least. We'll ask you again in 20 years then. Yeah, assuming <laughs> I'm still around. Yeah. Well, Jake, what are you working on these days? Well, currently, uh, I'm actually running a team. I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to say, but I'll just say I'm working with a team called Forgotten Empires, um, who are a distributed team, and they have been working on newer versions of the Age of Empires franchise for Microsoft. So they put out um, early this year Age of Empires Definitive Edition, which is basically Age of Empires 1, revamped with a totally new renderer, uh, improved pathfinding, and a you know, all new sound and uh, lots of AI improvements and uh, um, all of the expansion packs all in one go. It's like 20 bucks, I think, on the, on the Windows 10 store. Um, and we're working on another Age of Empires product, and I don't think it's officially been announced, so I don't really can't really talk about it. But I'm sure it wouldn't take much for anyone to work out what it what it really is going to be. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you, Jake, and uh, it's amazing that you're still so passionate about the games industry. We've really enjoyed uh, sharing all your memories. So thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Yeah.